to The Green Rush, a podcast about the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. On a weekly basis, hosts Ann Donahoe, Lewis Goldberg, and Nick Opich of KCSA Strategic Communications speak with the business leaders, financial experts, cultural icons, legislators, and generally interesting people moving the cannabis industry forward. This week, we have a special episode featuring Rick Doblin, founder and executive director of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, sitting down for a special fireside chat with Anne at the virtual KCSA Psychedelics Investor Conference. Suffice to say, there likely would not be a revived psychedelics industry if it were not for Rick Doblin, who has, for the last 35 years, worked with the FDA, Congress, and researchers around the world to advance psychedelic science and medicine. Ann and Rick sat down to discuss the evolution of the psychedelic space, the latest on MAPS clinical trials, and the roster of well-known capital market players supporting the psychedelics revolution. Over the decades, Rick Doblin has established himself as a leading authority on the renaissance of psychedelics and his insights on how these molecules may be able to help solve the global mental health crisis are not something that you want to miss. So sit back, relax, and listen to our special fireside chat with Rick Doblin. Hey, Rick. Yes, hi. How are you? (laughs) Sleepy, sleepy, but (laughs) same here. Uh, Well, thanks so much, Jeffrey and and Rick. Thank you so much. Um, For those of you who don't know, I'm here with Rick Doblin, um, a man who really needs no introduction, but here's a quick one anyway. (laughs) (laughs) There would be no psychedelics industry if it were not for Rick Doblin, who has for the last 35 years worked with the likes of the FDA, Congress, and researchers from around the world to bring psychedelic science uh, and medicine to, to life. He's really done it without the a profit motive driving him, which I know this is an investor conference, but, but trust me, you'll, you'll hear what he wants, what he has to say. Um, so Rick, thank you for joining us. Uh, for those not familiar with maps, um, you are really a, a unique company in structure. Um, can you describe, describe your business model? Um, you know, in that it's both a for-profit and a not-for-profit company all rolled into one. And why is that important in the psychedelic space? Well, to start with, um, MAPS began in um, April 8th, 1986, and it began as a nonprofit because at that time there was no resources for research from pharmaceutical industries, from government, from major foundations, and there were so many political obstructions that for-profit investors were not interested at all. And so the, the one big constituency that you, you didn't mention is donors. So we've, we've raised over $100 million in donations since we started. Um, but I missed one fundamental aspect of FDA regulation that, that when I started MAPS that I was not aware of. And I didn't actually learn about it for um, quite a few years, almost 30 years, when I learned that the Uh, an obscure provision that Ronald Reagan signed into law in 1984 to provide incentives for developing drugs that were off patent, which MDMA is. It was invented by Merck in 1912. So it's in the public domain. And in the 80s, I also hired patent attorneys to develop anti-patent strategies for use patents. 
So I wanted the uses of MDMA for PTSD and other things to be in the public domain as well. But what Ronald Reagan signed into law was called data exclusivity. And what that meant is that if you're the first sponsor to make a drug into a medicine that's never been made into a medicine before, you automatically get five years of data exclusivity by FDA. In Europe, it's 10 years. And what that means is that no one can use your data. You have exclusive use of your data to market a generic for five years or 10 years. So what that meant is that now we had an opportunity to actually sell MDMA at a profit, but we could not keep that inside the nonprofit that's taxable. And so it was an important story to tell our donors that if you help us make MDMA into a medicine, then at some point we may become self-sustaining through the sale of MDMA, but at a reasonable profit. So in December of 2014, we created the MAPS Public Benefit Corporation, which is a for-profit company, but it's maximizing public benefit rather than profit. And it is um, solely owned by the nonprofit. So we have the nonprofit, which people donate to the nonprofit. They get tax deductions for the donations. And we have relationships with other nonprofits around the world throughout Europe and Australia where other donors can get donations and tax deductions and then the money comes back to us to our projects. So what it turns out that we're able to do is not just pioneer the development of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, but we're pioneering a new approach towards marketing drugs in this uh, public benefit maximizing context. Because I, I think if we look at American healthcare, it's warped out of all sense by the profit motive. And we have more per capita expenses than any other uh, country, but our outcomes are, are way low, 40 or 50 among the other countries when you look across all the populations. And so much of our money goes off to insurance companies or siphoned by various for-profit actors. So I think healthcare is one of those areas where um, Capitalism could probably be improved by focusing on, uh, you know, maximizing public benefit. The, the other thing I'll just say about data exclusivity is that um, we are now in phase three of our research. We've successfully completed our first phase three study, and we've negotiated what we do in phase three with the FDA in this program called Special Protocol Assessment, which took another eight months. We came to agreement. But during that, the FDA indicated that they were going to require us, if we succeed in adults, to do pediatric studies, which was uh, 12 to 17-year-olds with PTSD. If that works, we have to go down to 7 to 11-year-olds. And you get an extra six months data exclusivity if you do pediatric studies. And what it does is now we have five and a half years where a generic manufacturer cannot submit an application to use our data to market a generic. And it takes the FDA at least uh, six months or more to review generic applications. So in essence, we will have six months uh, data, six years, I mean, data exclusivity in the U.S. and 10 in Europe. So our business model is, is based really on that we're initially not in business. It was, <laughs> uh, you know, $100 million people have donated because they care about psychedelic psychotherapy. And they also care about the implications of psychedelic psychotherapy for changing people's attitudes towards the drug war. 
which is massive human rights violation, massively counterproductive, doesn't do anything about drug abuse, has always been used to persecute minorities for political ends. The drug war has never been about drug abuse. So we are able to um, address that as well. You know, you alluded to to the the phase three trials that you guys are in, but I, I want to back up a little bit. You um, are working with MDMA as your core drug in development. Why why this drug and and why PTSD? Those are um, great questions. So let's just say that I, um, you know, after I gave up my um, plan in the '80s to get a clinical psych PhD because nobody was going to let me in, and that's where I turned to studying the the politics, and that's where I ended up getting. Um, you know, my master's and PhD from the Kennedy School of Government on uh, the regulation of the medical use of psychedelics. So I was trained to think strategically. So of all the psychedelics, uh, MDMA is the most gentle. Um, it's the easiest to integrate. It's the least uh, different processing of our consciousness than any of the other psychedelics. And uh, it's incredibly profound, the effect, and it has an enormous uh, therapeutic potential. Um, those are some of the reasons why we chose MDMA. Another reason is that in contrast to um, some of the other companies working with psilocybin, um, we have felt that it was uh, very important for us to have protocols where we are able to give MDMA to therapists as part of their training. Um, I think some of the psilocybin people think that it's advantage to have that training in their therapist, but their therapist can go to Jamaica or they can go to the Netherlands or there's other ways that they, they can get um, access to mushrooms. Now more and more um, cities in some um, states in America have decriminalized mushrooms as well. So I felt that there's the, the resistance among psychiatrists and psychotherapists for their own experience is less for MDMA than it would be for psilocybin or LSD. Hmm. So all of those things made me think that MDMA would be the first psychedelic to make it through the system. Um, the other reason is that we saw MDMA come into use therapeutically in the middle 70s after all the other drugs had been criminalized and in the 1970. Uh, it was incredible the therapeutic potential of MDMA. Around half a million doses had been used um, in therapy settings before it kind of escaped and became ecstasy and that's what kind of drew the backlash against it. And during that period of time though, there was a lot of evidence about uh, informal evidence, anecdotal evidence about what it was good for. And it was used for PTSD um, in, the, in this period of legal therapeutic use before it was criminalized by uh, DEA in 19... Um, 85. Now, initially, there was all sorts of discussions about uh, MDMA neurotoxicity and how it was supposedly one dose, permanent brain damage, major functional consequences. It was uh, vastly exaggerated. It was uh, promoted by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, this kind of narrative. It was during the period of the escalation of the drug war by the Reagans. Uh, and, and it just didn't, didn't make sense. But we initially started working with uh, Dr. Charlie Grobe on a study with MDMA for cancer patients with anxiety. And we were taking people that only had one year or less to live so that the neurotoxicity arguments wouldn't matter because what we showed is that nobody could really show much damage from MDMA. So the, the, the theory became that um, when you got older, you would show this damage. 
And so we figured, okay, if we work with cancer patients who are not going to live, um, the neurotoxicity concerns um, won't be used against us. And so in 1992 is when we tried to get permission from FDA to do a study with MDMA with cancer patients with anxiety. Um, the FDA did open the door to psychedelic research in a formal way, but they said we had to begin with phase one dose response safety studies, the same way that they would regulate um, drugs from any other kind of drug for any other condition. So Charlie and I went ahead and we did the safety study. And then when we moved to do this project with uh, cancer patients with anxiety, it was near the end of the 90s. And the neurotoxicity scares had gotten even greater. And Charlie had decided that it was too controversial to continue with MDMA. So then he decided to work with psilocybin with cancer patients and anxiety. So that started the whole psilocybin research in patients. Um, I felt though that MDMA was terrific for PTSD. I'd done work with a PTSD patient in 1984 and knew that it was great for that. And the neurotoxicity concerns, even though they were getting um, more widely distributed, you could say more widely promoted, the scientific basis for it was eroding. And so it felt to me like we could go back to uh, PTSD so that in 1999, we started efforts in Spain to do MDMA for PTSD, which we got approved. And then unfortunately, 2000, uh, the study started going and then the Madrid antidrugs heartbreaking. But in 2000, uh, Dr. Michael Minhofer and I met for the first time at the world's first ayahuasca conference, which was in San Francisco. Michael was a member of MAPS. He'd studied with Stan Groff in the holotropic breathwork. And that he um, approached me and said, let's do uh, some sort of offshore clinic somewhere where we could create a psychedelic clinic where people could come and we could educate people that way. And he had just come from Deborah Mash's uh, Ibogaine clinic in St. Kitts, where a friend of his had, or a patient of his, I mean, had gone there for Ibogaine for opiate addiction. So I said to Michael, I'm absolutely not interested in that. We have to make change from the heart of the beast, from the inside out, from the FDA. And Michael was an expert in PTSD. And so within minutes, we said, let's abandon the idea of going to um, an offshore clinic. Let's work with the FDA and work on PTSD. So that's what the genesis of it. But I'll just say very briefly that um, PTSD changes your brain. You have uh, hyperactive amygdala where your fear is processed. You have reduction of activity in the prefrontal cortex. You don't think as logically, you get triggered too easily. And there's an inability to put a memory into long-term storage. It's like it's already always continually happening or about to happen. So the hippocampus and the amygdala connectivity is is not as strong in PTSD patients. And hippocampus is where memories are put into long-term storage. But MDMA does the exact opposite. Vets in our study and other people have said, MDMA changed, PTSD changed my brain and MDMA changed it back. So MDMA reduces activity in the amygdala. So you're not as fearfully responding to things. It increases activity in the prefrontal cortex. So you think more logically and it increases connectivity between the um, hippocampus and the amygdala, so memories can be moved into long-term storage, and it promotes um, release of oxytocin, which is the hormone of, of love, connection, nursing mothers, of bonding, and it promotes new neural connections to be built um, in pro-social areas of the brain, so that you're actually rewiring your brain under MDMA, and similarly under psilocybin and other psychedelics. And so MDMA is really ideal for PTSD, 
And now that we've knocked out the concerns about neurotoxicity, um, that's been now 16 years since around 2000 that we've been working on gathering the data till the end of 2016 when we had the end of phase two meeting with FDA and then the rest has been phase three. And so, you know, I know that you're close to releasing some data um, in the phase three, uh, from the phase three trials. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you're, the way I'm gonna get around this is, can you get, can you talk a little bit about what you're hoping to see um, in phase three and maybe what you've seen in phase two that gives you, uh, that gives you confidence? Yeah, so, um, you know, we did phase two studies in Israel, Switzerland, Canada, and the United States. Yeah, we treated 107 people in those studies. Um, unlike most PTSD research, we felt that we needed to work with the hardest cases because of all the social stigma against psychedelics and that we needed to enroll people who had previously attempted suicide. Um, not only, but, but those, and that they had to be treatment resistant, meaning they had to fail initially on both pharmacotherapy and psychotherapy, and later we change that to just failing on pharmacotherapy or psychotherapy. But we had on average severe <laughs> chronic treatment resistant PTSD patients in phase two. And what we showed is that um, we're comparing therapy with either inactive MDMA or um, no MDMA or inactive placebo completely or low dose MDMA versus therapy with full-dose MDMA. And it's substantial amounts of therapy. So the whole treatment is basically um, 42 hours of therapy, three day-long MDMA sessions and 12 90-minute non-drug psychotherapy sessions. So what we showed that is slightly over 20% of the people that got the therapy with inactive um, placebo or, or very low-dose MDMA that wasn't therapeutic over 20% of them um, no longer had PTSD at the two-month follow-up. Um, and so we, we, we chose the two-month follow-up after the last experimental session as our primary outcome measure because we didn't want people to say, oh, it's a psychedelic afterglow and they're, they're on this high and it's gonna fade after a few weeks. So two months after the last experimental session is a really good amount of time. What we showed when you add MDMA to the therapy that 56% no longer had PTSD. So it, it more than doubled the amount. Now, the most important thing, I think, from the point of view of insurance coverage and the point of view of a social benefit and public benefit is that we did a one-year follow-up as well. So after the two-month follow-up, we stopped doing any treatments whatsoever. People can do whatever they want. They can stop treatments, they can start therapy, they can do, do whatever they want. So we can't say that the 12 month results are just due to the MDMA therapy because after two months they can do whatever or they can do nothing. But what we do show at the one year follow-up is that two thirds no longer have PTSD. So people keep getting better after the therapy is over because they've learned how to process trauma, they've learned how to react to those triggers that previously made them feel overwhelmed with symptoms and they're able to manage that much better. So that's tremendous data to take people who were chronic, severe, treatment resistant, and then at the one year follow-up, two thirds of them no longer have PTSD. So that's our phase two data. On the basis of our phase two data, we got permission from FDA to go to phase three and MDMA was declared a breakthrough therapy. 
meaning that it's among the most important drugs being researched for an unmet medical need. Big Pharma likes to get breakthrough therapy. Two-thirds of the applications for breakthrough therapy are rejected. So only one-third gets accepted. And, and since then, we've had psilocybin get breakthrough therapy for both major depressive disorder and also um, treatment-resistant depression. So phase three, we are hoping to um, get results that were similar to phase two because the phase two results are outstanding. And so what I can share now is uh, that of our first uh, phase three study, which was uh, 90 people, um, it was originally gonna be 100 people. We had our interim analysis in March of 2020, which was when everybody, 100 people were enrolled, but 60 people had reached the primary outcome measure. And at that point, we were told that we had a 90% or greater probability of success at at least a medium effect size. Uh, and effect size is a measure of, of how strong the effect is. Statistical significance is just the differentiation, is it due to chance or not? But the effect size then is how strong of an effect it, it was. And in phase two, we had a 0.8, which is a large effect size, which is really great. Um, so what I can say for phase three is that we have statistically significant results. We have an excellent safety record and our results are um, in some cases, even a bit better than our phase two results. So we are um, having a meeting with FDA on February 24th to discuss the timetable going forward. So we're in a tremendous situation and we are what we believe to be on track for trying to um, make MDMA into a medicine. We're hoping FDA approval can come somewhere the end of 2022 or early 2023. We're also engaged now in a big fundraising effort to bring MDMA phase three research to Europe and around the world. I mean, so I think let's, the audience listening in is focused on investing in the psychedelic industry. So why, can you talk a little bit about why have people like Tim Ferriss and Bob Parsons, um, the Coens, um, and other well-known uh, capital markets players donated to MAPS? And and what should should people be paying attention to um, in the audience right now? What 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 do you think um, is, is a compelling reason to donate? Well, we are what has been called the tip of the spear. So, uh, for example, um, two Fridays ago, we had a meeting with FDA about a protocol that we've actually submitted to give MDMA to therapists as part of their training. We, we have a protocol for up to 120 people. We've done that for 90 therapists. We want to continue that. We submitted that protocol to FDA a year and a half ago, and FDA has put it on clinical hold. And not only that, but then they're saying that they want to impose new uh, criteria for therapists and for the future clinics, where they're saying they want the lead person of the two-person therapy team to be an MD-PhD, and, and they want a doctor on site at all these clinics rather than on call. So the reason people should donate is that we, we've spent over uh, $200,000 on lawyers to argue this out, that we don't think psychedelic clinics of the future require a doctor on site. We don't think that the lead person should be MD, PhD. And so we are fighting things out for the entire field. We're creating uh, tremendous public attitude changes. We're also um, opening the eyes of the regulators in a lot of different ways so that whatever we do benefits the entire field. 
So people should donate. But I'd say the reasons why some of these others donated, particularly the, the Cones and Bob Parsons, is that they uh, cared about veterans with PTSD. And so that was a big issue for them. But also they realized that this rise of the for-profit industry would not happen without the nonprofits, not just MAPS, but Hefter Research Institute, which then morphed into USONA, which is the nonprofit group trying to do psilocybin, the Beckley Foundation, which is uh, Amanda Fielding in England, which has done early uh, mechanism of action research and drug policy reform, that the field has been built on decades and decades and decades of nonprofit actors. And as we continue to go forward, we will continue to make breakthroughs with regulators and public opinion that will um, make it easier for the for-profits. So it's it's part of an obligation, I think, uh, or not obligation, but uh, an opportunity to uh, really honor the origins of where this came from. Um, the, the other part of it is that um, we have done uh, polling and focus groups uh, and people associated with us about psychedelic medicine. And for-profit pharma is heavily distrusted, as you can imagine. Um, and it's for price gouging, it's for all, all sorts of different things. So the nonprofits in this space um, change the perception even of the for-profits and that there's a lot of people doing this for good, for social good. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of good reasons for um, investors out of uh, opportunity, gratitude, and strategic sense of their own benefit to support uh, nonprofit psychedelic drug development. You know, you talk about being the the tip of the spear, um, and and you really formed maps um, in during the period of the the just say no era. And you mentioned the Reagans, um, and and you know, you, in spite of that, have thrived during the most hostile environment to drug policy reform. Um, how how have you survived and thrived? And then, what role does uh, drug reform policy play at maps? Well, I would say the only reason we thrived because initially was all the people that had illegal psychedelic experiences. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, millions and millions and millions of people have had those illegal experiences. And to the most part, they've been beneficial. And so what really helped us was um, people who felt that the drug war was a violation of human rights, who felt that their own psychedelic experiences were valuable to them, who felt that society was in many ways um, going off the track, um, you know, climate change, warfare, uh, the rise of the irrational, uh, totalitarianism, you know, that, that humanity is, is not a sure thing 100 years from now you know, we're really in danger. And so a lot of people who've had the sense that psychedelic experiences, not just, you know, everybody takes psychedelics and automatically the world will be a better place. But if people take psychedelics in proper set and settings with proper preparation and integration, there's a lot of stories about people's lives who have been enriched. And they also become more aware of our connections with other people, our connections with nature. So I'd say it was idealism and, uh, hope that made people donate to us during the hardest time when when also it was clear to people that the drug war itself was a violation of uh, religious freedom human rights it's only recently like the the cones and bob parsons that and rebecca mercer 
who also donated a million dollars over four years, um, restricted to veterans. It's only recently that we've gotten into um, donations from people who care about veterans. Uh, the biggest example for that for us is the Navy SEALs Foundation, which just donated $50,000 because so many Navy SEALs are using MDMA for PTSD or going down to Mexico for Ibogaine and 5-MeO-DMT. So the idea that people who care just about mental health would donate to us um, has not really happened yet, other than those people that care about veterans or those people that care about psychedelics or care about social change. You know, we've not gotten money from the National Institute of Mental Health, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, the major foundations, um, the Wellcome Trust in England. All the Wellcome Trust kicked us out the door and said it's a reputational risk. Now, this was over. Um, uh, 10 years ago, almost 15 years ago, that they said that. So that's why I'm saying that the reputational uh, situation has fundamentally changed now because of the work of the nonprofits and because of the work of uh, drug policy reformers. We see um, a lot of uh, changing attitudes towards marijuana. So now that marijuana is legal in, in Canada and a lot of states in the US and medical marijuana has over 90% support by the American population, that's contributed also to the change in attitudes for psychedelics. And we've also been a big part of that marijuana um, effort as well. Uh, you know, once you get FDA approval, um, you know, you've, you've been talking about, um, you know, how set and setting are very important and having, um, you know, these hours of intensive um, psychotherapy, you know, go hand in glove with, with, the, with the treatments themselves. Um, you know, that's expensive. Uh, can you talk about insurance coverage and access? I mean, you know, uh, the, you know, our medical system is not necessarily, um, well, it's screwed up. So <laughs> I'll just leave it there. But, um, you know, that's really expensive. And for people who are struggling um, and maybe can't hold down a job or, or for various other reasons, um, are insurance companies gonna cover this? Um, I believe they will. Um, we've had, um, uh, and a healthcare economist, Elliot Marseille, has done cost-effectiveness studies on our phase two data. And he's now updating that with our phase three data. And he published this. So if you go to Plus One, which is an open access journal, um, you can find the cost-effectiveness study. Or if you go to uh, Medline and you just put in MDMA cost-effectiveness, um, you'll get this paper. But it's well known that people who have uh, PTSD have higher healthcare utilization. The living with all that stress creates a lot of other problems, creates uh, more visits to the emergency room, uh, high blood pressure, all, all different things that stress-related illnesses, um, stress can generate stress-related illnesses. So um, we believe that um, it's cost-effective within about three years for the insurance companies. What we're doing now is a long, long-term follow-up to everybody in phase two, some of them over 15 years ago. And we're gonna look at healthcare utilization, not just the fact um, at how durable the PTSD uh, symptom relief is, but also what their um, costs are for their health insurance. So we believe that insurance companies will cover it. Um, actually, the um, some of the largest uh, health insurance uh, groups um, have been looking into this already. We've had uh, Optum Health, um, United Health Group has had a special uh, convening a couple weeks ago about how they, uh, what they can learn about psychedelic psychotherapy and how they might cover it. 
Um, it is more expensive initially than just giving somebody a pill or just having somebody go to psychotherapy once every week or two for a year or more. But when you add it all up, if you go to psychotherapy for a week, a year, that's 52 hours. And our therapy is more concentrated. Now, the thing that does make our therapy more expensive is that we work with a two-person team. And that's where I was talking about this credentials. So we think that we'll be able to knock out the MD-PhD as the first person. It doesn't make sense. Um, we don't have to do it in phase three. We, we came to agreement with FDA on phase three before they started imposing these other requirements on USONA and on COMPASS and generally on other researchers. So they can't because we have this agreement in the special protocol assessment retroactively impose them on us for phase three. So in phase three, our lead therapist only needs to be a master's level and we don't need a doctor on site. So we think that we can try to keep the two-person model, but the second person would eventually be an intern or an apprentice working to get hours to be a psychotherapist, working for low cost or little. We are also going to be exploring group therapy, and that's going to be another very important uh, area of research that could potentially drive down the costs. Um, in certain circumstances, perhaps group therapy will be even better uh, in, than individual therapy. We think for a lot of people, it will not be better that you need the support. Um, people are going through the worst things that have ever happened to them in life, and you can do that in a group, but people a lot of times will need more individual support. There's shame, there's guilt, there's all sorts of problems connected with it. But if group therapy is 80% as effective, but only 30% um, the cost, then that may be the model that spreads um, for most people. Now, what about people that don't have insurance? Um, that's where we get to drug policy reform. So when we talk about equity and access, it's important for us that we provide access to people, to psychedelics to do on their own in a culture that has made it legal for them to do so, but that has embedded knowledge about harm reduction, about um, opportunities for drug checking so that it's pure drugs. People are not laced with fentanyl. You know, Fentanyl is now being mixed with everything these days. So there should be access to pure drugs, access to honest drug information, access to harm reduction, access to treatment on demand. And we think by 2035, there will be the system of license legalization. And this will be a business model for clinics too, because to get a license, you'll probably have to go to a clinic and have an experience under supervision and you know what you're getting into, then you get a license to buy a whole class of psychedelics. And then if you get your uh, if you misbehave, you get punished for your misbehavior, and then your license gets taken away for a while as well. So we think we're moving towards a license legalization system, but there's also health equity involved in that MDMA is the most inherently therapeutic of all the psychedelics. Um, people have taken MDMA at raves and made worse off. When their emotions come to the surface, they don't want to talk about it, they suppress their feelings. We've had people have been worse off for years later after MDMA experiences. So. It's not always inherently therapeutic, but because it's so gentle, because it's filled with self-acceptance, self-compassion, self-love, these experiences are often beneficial. So we think that uh, for those people that don't have insurance or who um, want to try this on their own, they should be able to do that. So there's a certain um, equitable aspect to that drug policy reform. But also, I believe that we will demonstrate increasingly that it is cost effective for insurance companies. And what I think will happen, hopefully, is in America, we will move to 
be a civilized nation the way most countries in Europe and Canada and elsewhere where you have universal health care. And then if we get health insurance. The, the other thing I'll say is the veterans and the um, Veterans Administration. There's over a million vets that have disability for PTSD. It costs the VA somewhere in the neighborhood of $15 billion a year just for disability payments, $15 billion a year. The VA is the about the only organization that pays for healthcare, but if the healthcare doesn't work, they pay for disability. So for most of our insurance companies, they pay for healthcare, but if the healthcare um, doesn't work, if, if you don't get treatments for it, you become disabled, then they don't pay for that. So the VA has the most incentive of any organization to cover MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. And we've tried for 30 years to start research inside the VA, starting in 1990 at the San Francisco VA. And now we've finally broken through. So there'll be studies at the Bronx VA with uh, Dr. Rachel, or Rachel Yehuda, PhD, and also studies at the Loma Linda VA. It's an investigator-initiated trials. We're gonna try to start group therapy at the Portland VA. So if we can get um, the VA to adopt this, and then cover it, that will also set a standard for mm -hmm. uh, private health insurance companies as well. Uh, we only have a minute or two left, but uh, what are your, your hopes? <laughs> Good. Um, what are your hopes and fears for the new Biden administration? Well, ironically, uh, or not ironically, but because we were so um, supported by people who cared a lot about vets and because um, President Trump cared a lot about the military, um, or pretended to at least. Um, we had um, no problems really with the FDA for our political problems during the Trump administration. What we did encounter was a bureaucratic protectionism. That's where I think this MD PhD thing is coming in, mm -hmm. the doctors on site. It's that FDA doesn't regulate psychotherapy. They're, they're going overboard to try to um, address what they see as their potential risk if this becomes a medicine um, and they don't want it to boomerang back on them. So they're, they're trying to do these things that don't quite make sense. So under the Biden administration, I don't think it's gonna be fundamentally different. We basically did have an open door at the FDA. This bureaucratic self-protectionism is gonna continue, but I think we'll be able to overcome that. And I think we may actually, um, you know, under the Biden administration, we believe that um, science is uh, going to remain more important than politics. Near the end of the Trump administration, Trump tried to politicize the FDA over vaccines and trying to. And so if the FDA gets politicized in that way, that would would be bad for everybody in this whole field of psychedelics and the whole field of medicine. That didn't happen, uh, fortunately, and it's not going to happen under the Biden administration. So I, I think that. Um, we have a general sense that the, the mass incarceration has been a problem. Biden and uh, Kamala Harris have not been uh, renowned drug policy reformers. In fact, in, in the other ways, the, the, the RAVE Act, uh, which criminalized harm reduction was Biden's doing. Um, but I think he's acknowledged his mistake. So I think under the Biden administration, we will have um, the opportunities to really make a scientific case and the FDA will review things scientifically and on that basis, psychedelics will become medicines. But okay. only combined with therapy and only under direct supervision. That's the other thing. It's only, it's not gonna ever be take-home medicines. Uh, we're not gonna have telemedicine with MDMA or psilocybin <laughs> at home. 
Um, there is some people trying that with ketamine. Uh, you can make an argument that ketamine, which lasts an hour, um, could, when people are suicidally depressed or seriously depressed and under COVID, uh, you could, I think, justify um, ketamine sessions at home, uh, but not MDMA or psilocybin. Okay, last question. Where can people donate? Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> well, first off, I'm rick at maps.org. So if uh, if they want to donate uh, anything over, um, you know, a thousand or five thousand dollars, just write me an email. But you go to maps.org and we have a donate page there. We accept um, stocks, which are now very high. So if people want to donate stocks uh, and get a full tax deduction, we have um, agreements throughout uh company of nonprofits throughout many countries in Europe. So um, go to maps.org um, and you can donate there or send me an email at rick at maps.org. Rick, thank you so much, not just for your time today, but for your 35 year career. You are literally the reason why most companies that are that are in this, uh, that are on this panel are here today. So thank you so much. Yeah, and let me just acknowledge Stan Groff. I would not be here without Stan Groff and he's the real pioneer that has kept this whole field alive. Thanks, Rick. Huge thanks to Rick Doblin from MAPS. In case you didn't know, Rick was actually on our podcast last April. I think it was April 9th. Uh, Lewis and I were lucky enough to spend an hour chatting with him. Um, and if this space interests you, it's really worth going back to, uh, to listen to that. Uh, you can check it out um, on our website, greenrushpodcast.com. Uh, for more on MAPS, check out maps.org. Read up, donate if you're so inclined. Uh, they're really doing some amazing work. As always, thanks for listening. If you want to chat with us, find us on Twitter at the underscore green rush or on Instagram at the green rush underscore podcast, or feel free to drop us an email at green rush at kcsa.com. We are always looking for feedback and for guest ideas and let us know what you think about some of this psychedelics content that we're putting out into the world. Um, and we would love it if you subscribe to us in your favorite podcatcher and, uh, give us a review. Thanks for listening. One take, Shay. One take. Cannabis. Cannabis.